This morning we continue in a temporary series called Foundations. Uh, we are going to be preparing to do a series on heroes uh, based out of Hebrews chapter 11 coming up. And we'll enter into that before we get to Easter. Uh, please be preparing for uh, where we're going with Easter. We'll have a Good Friday service again and uh, a couple Easter services, full, uh, full things with children and adults. And if you get jealous of the children part, we might work something in for you as well. So uh, this morning as we continue, I want to share with you real briefly where we were last week. Last week we were talking about baptism. We're doing a series right now, a short mini-series on the ordinances, the ordinances of the church. And uh, within uh, evangelical Christianity, we hold, we espouse to two key ordinances. One is baptism, the other is the Lord's table. And I heard something this morning uh, on the radio that spoke to uh, baptism, and I thought it was a key component. And we want to share with you we are going to have a baptismal service on the 14th of April, Palm Sunday. And we just really want to encourage you, and I want you to hear these words clearly. That one of the reasons, a question was brought to uh, an individual that uh, knows much about much when it comes to theological areas. And so the question came to them, why is it that baptisms would happen immediately in Acts? And yet, sometimes we wait a year. Sometimes we have to go through this long litany of classes. Why, why is it there's such a difference? And there was a great point made that in the time of Scripture, loyalty to Caesar was paramount. And it really was that lack of loyalty that got Jesus in trouble. That was where... Not necessarily ultimately, but, but that's how Pilate was able to justify, and that's the way that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were able to attack him, is saying that he claims to be God. And the fascinating thing about Caesar is that he was to be Lord and Savior, and the only one. And if you ascribe to anybody else, then high treason. And so if that was the case for the early church, here was the pressure of, or the tension is probably a better word, the tension of the decision of baptism and the immediacy of it. It was, who do you name as Lord and Savior? And not only is it, who do you name as Lord and Savior, but are you willing to give proclamation to that? And that's going to be a key word we're going to look at today is proclamation. So my encouragement to you today is this. If you are on the fence about baptism and you're saying, uh, yes, I have a personal relationship with the Lord, but I have not yet participated in believer's baptism, letting the world know that I named Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I want you to wrestle with what those believers, your brothers and sisters, had to wrestle with early on in Scripture. That there was a cost. This is that cost that Jesus talked about. We have brothers and sisters in Nigeria right now. Many of you have seen these 
these uh, reports about those that are being slayed for their, their cause of Christ, their proclamation of who they name Lord and Savior. They're given opportunities to let go of that, to save their life, and yet they're holding. And here in America, we are rarely asked. And if we are asked, sometimes we'll utter the word God, because that might be a little safer. If you really want to cause controversy, share with people that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and no other. Amen? And so, that is a big part of baptism. If you are struggling with the idea of, well, I, you know, I made the decision, I made the choice, you know, it's a private choice, understand the history of this. That this choice was immediately proclaimed because this is what the Lord desired. Now, this morning we're going to talk about the Lord's table and why we're proclaiming and what we're proclaiming with the Lord's table and why he desired for that to happen. We're going to get into some classroom. This is our, our level 200 classroom thing, a little different today. That was a little introduction, a little segue off of baptism. We actually have a sign-up sheet. If you would like to be part of that baptism group that's coming up in mid-April, please, before you leave today, either let me know or sign up out at the kiosk. There's a sheet saying, yes, I would like to be part of that baptism group. All right, and just spend time praying through that. But now we're going to be talking about the second ordinance. And remember, when we're talking about ordinance, it's, it's in that really passive tone, right? It's like when you're going through In-N-Out Burger, and they say, would you like fries with that? Would you like ketchup? Would you like salt? Would you like animal style? Would you like chili on that? Would you... All of that is in the passive tone, right? Because the customer is always what? Right. Can I just share with you, when it comes to following Christ, who is always right? Christ. Christ is always right. And so there are some things here that he has instituted for his church, saying, this you need to do. The first one is baptism. The second one is the Lord's table. And there's a lot of interesting things, I'll just use that word liberally, a lot of interesting things that surround this ceremony. So we're going to go right back to where we were last week with a little Q&A time. And I will share with you, if it's on the docket, we'll, we'll work through it when we get to the docket, but you may have questions that are not on the docket for this morning. So Let's have some fun. And what questions do you have about the Lord's table? Yes, Dale. Why did he uh, use grape juice instead of wine if that was probably the primary? <laughs> That's a great point. His question was, why do we use grape juice instead of wine? There was a, uh, I don't know if you're all aware of this. How many have read Grapes of Wrath? Right? There was a huge wine shortage and grape shortage that happened in California in the 20s, and they had to come in with kind of a. Any of you buying that? It has nothing to do with the grapes of wrath. Uh, good! You have the heart of a skeptic this morning. That, that demonstrates discernment and wisdom. Uh, why do we do that? Well, some denominations do not, some denominations use wine.
there are many evangelical denominations, one I grew out of, that would say alcohol is a sin. So that would be a compromise for their dogma. So that's a little bit of where some of this has come in. Uh, some of it has to do with the fact, and, and I was just researching this, that it, Jesus called it wine. What did he say? What? Fruit of the vine. He said the fruit of the vine. Now, there's a lot of different ways that you can interpret that, right? Here's what I would say. We are using the fruit of the vine. That's all we need to focus on. Let me give you my comfort level with this. There should be very... Uh, how do I want to say this, Dale? Uh, we should be very careful about causing any unknown or not thought through barriers. Okay, that's a lot of what we're going to look at today. What, what are these barriers towards taking the Lord's table? We host Celebrate Recovery. Even if we didn't, I would still hold the same view. There are those that have said that I cannot take a drink. I cannot have any alcohol. And so in my mind, since Jesus called it the fruit of the vine, I'm fine with serving grape juice. Um, so, plus I want to know that you all want to take communion for the right reasons. <laughs> I mean, that's really what's going on here. <laughs> Dale, that answer your question? Great question. That was not on the docket. Well done. It was in the purveyance of my studies, but... All right, another question. Lord's table. Anything's open? Yes, Mr. Huffman. Yeah, so I would say, first of all, I dress like this, okay, versus my brother Ray. My, I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but I, I, I'm adopted, and I found my family in 2012, and there are six siblings, or five siblings. I am the youngest. I'm an evangelical preacher. The oldest lives two miles from my father in Maryland, and he is a priest. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that nuts? Um, and it was a great joy of mine to go visit him uh, one Sunday morning, and he just beaming announced me, and with great joy announced that I'm also a Protestant preacher, which was just fantastic, that he embraced me, even though there might be some differences. So it's on the docket, brother. It's on the docket, because it is a very important question, so we'll get to it. And not just the Catholics, it's, it's going to be... It's going to be the Orthodox. It's going to be Lutheran. It's going to be what we're talking about. Other questions? Yes, Stephen. Ooh. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns that we need to be careful that we do not eat in an unworthy manner. Some of this is on the docket, but let me speak to it just a minute. Actually, what do you think an unworthy manner is? <laughs> I'm trying to be like a professor right now. All right, I'll, I'll do it. I, that's fair enough. I'll do it. That's good. 
That's really good. Uh, although the man's preaching next Sunday, don't miss it, all right? Um, I believe an unworthy manner has to do with missing the sanctity of what this meal involves. Okay? Uh, missing what the sanctity of this meal involves. So that covers a lot of different areas. To eat in an unworthy manner, for me to show up to the fifth house from the corner of Olive and Berrywood next Thanksgiving and just walk through the door and take a chair at the table, probably not, I'm probably not worthy to sit there. I haven't been invited to that table. Does that make sense? All right. Now, I can be invited, but I'm still a guest. Or I can be the ones that are hosting and there is the family that is sharing in all of that. There may be some who arrive at that table at Thanksgiving in an inappropriate manner. Right? You ever have the family member that is estranged and that there is some real conflict going on and they just show up to cause conflict at the Thanksgiving table? That would be kind of an unworthy manner. We can do that as we try to observe the Lord's table. And one of the ways I'll speak specifically to it, Stephen, is I want you to picture going into the throne room. Picture John's vision, the throne room of God. Go to Revelation 2, go to Revelation 1, and read through it. And I want you to see how, whether it's even Isaiah back in the Old Testament when he had an experience with God, when people have an experience with God, they fall flat on their face. There is a reverence. There is the fear of the Lord. There is a, an exalting. There's a glorifying. There's an understanding of who is God and who am I. And often I refer to this this way. Is that I want to make sure if I'm going into the audience of the king that I've done what I can to be prepared. I don't want to go before that king in a lackadaisical way. I don't want to go uh, in a confrontive manner. I don't want to go in a manner where I am disregarding honor. So that's one way to answer that. And we'll, we'll clarify a little bit more. <coughs> Another question. we got time for maybe two or three. Yes, Lauren. So that speaks to open and closed communion. That's on the docket. We'll get to it. Um, in a certain way, yes. Uh, now, some of what happens, as I understand it, with that observance is there are a lot of peripherals that are man-controlled peripherals in order that you would qualify to go to the Lord's table. We're not speaking to those peripherals. But I'll explain in greater detail when we get to open and close communion. You have to be. Well, let's just see who was paying attention last week. <laughs> let's all say it together. Uh, do you have to be baptized to go to heaven? No. Should you? Yes. There you go. There's, a, there's the answer. <laughs> Watch last week's on video. All right. Uh, last one, John. 
Mm. I'm going to let Stephen answer that. <laughs> uh, I believe there is. I believe there is. Um, when I have made idols in my life, and when I choose those idols, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like if we were to, I'm trying to be careful what I choose here. I'm going to pick on myself, and I'm going to use a, a non-threatening, but you can, you can insert the proper, more gravitas illustration as you desire. Yesterday morning, I found myself mysteriously at King's Donuts. <laughs> I don't understand, but we're using that word mystery a lot today. I found myself at King's Donuts, and I'm not supposed to be at King's Donuts right now. And so my justification was that it's cheaper than, that's cheaper than just the coffee I would get at Starbucks, and I wanted to save the money. I shouldn't have gone anywhere, all right? So I come home, and my wife says, how was your morning? Now, do I have honest, open, harmonious interaction with my wife at this point? I do not. <laughs> Because I know she saw it come through on the bank app that we have. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. She's, she's, she's like the donut Nazi in my life. <laughs> she tracks what I do. She actually, I, in one of these times where I'm trying to like, be good with my, I went to a fast food, and she happened to be driving by with one of our students, and she drove into the drive-thru the wrong way and pointed the headlights at me and just honked nonstop. <laughs> I have a lot of accountability in my life. <laughs> Point being, back to the seriousness of the question, John, yes. And I think we know when those moments are. And that speaks a little bit to what Stephen's talking about, that I don't want to just go in front of my wife when she knows I've broken kind of a covenant, okay? And, and act like I really haven't done anything. And the more arrogant I get about that, the more there's a breaking of our relationship. Now, I'm using donuts, folks, but you know the stuff I'm really talking about, right? Okay? Uh, protectionist language there. Okay, let's get into it. This is fun. I wish we could just keep doing it, but no, i got to get serious. Our key verse this year, our key passage is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11. The, the passage for this series is, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. So this morning, and I'm going to have to move through this somewhat quickly because of the time that we've taken, but it's good and valuable time. Um, I'm kind of locked down here. Let's see what we get going. So you can turn to 1 Corinthians 11 because a lot of what we're going to look at is in 1 Corinthians 11. So let's, we're going to look at this forensically, who, what, why, when, okay? Uh, I think we have the where. I'll, I'll speak a little bit to where. It'll be a passing comment. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians, we can answer this question. Who participates in the Lord's table? I think that was actually one of the questions. And we have it here in verses 17 and 18. And this is a great way to prepare ourselves even for this morning. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you were together... It is not for the better, but for the worse. For the, in the first place, when you come together as the church, 
I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, how many of you are familiar with that part of the passage when it's talking about communion? And you may be saying, what does that have to do with communion? Because you have to read the context. Paul's even talking all the way back in chapter 10 about communion and partaking in communion. He's in a continuous flow of, uh, of a statement and a thought here. But if we're going to ask the question, you've got to look at and examine the entire part of the passage. And one of the obvious questions here would be, well, do unbelievers partake in, in uh, the Lord's table? Is there any purpose behind this? Paul's very specific. He says, <coughs> excuse me, he says what? Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Who's coming together? The church. The church is coming together. For in the first place, when you come together as a what? Church. One of the few times even in the NT where you actually see the word church. For when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Now, the context here is what drives the answer to who. Let's keep moving. 1 Corinthians 11.26. Why is my watch talking to me? That's kind of weird. 1 Corinthians 11.26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Who did He write the letter to? Unbelievers or believers? To believers. He wrote it to the church in Corinth. There is never any mention anywhere in Scripture that unbelievers are to be partaking in the Lord's table. It is for the church. Now, if I bring, rewind my life 15 years ago, and I've got a three-year-old in Gentry, and she's sitting here, and she's part of our church family, right? Is it something that you would recommend or you... I shouldn't say you recommend, is this something that she should be partaking in as a three-year-old? No. Because what is the condition to be the church that is being listed here? Salvation. A statement of faith of personal belief and salvation. All right? That is what qualifies you as the church. Not just because you come and you attend. It is for those who have made a statement of faith and believe you are the bride of Christ or the church, Ephesians 5. All right? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what is the Lord's table or communion? Well, as we stay here in 1 Corinthians 11, we start to delve more into the passage that you're familiar with. Uh, let's go to verse 24. I think is where I have a starting there. And it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is the Lord's table or communion? Well, I've highlighted what Jesus said. Okay? Now, understand this statement. Paul is saying, 
the Lord gave this to me. So the Lord provided this supernaturally as a message to Paul because he was not where? Where did he miss out? The upper room. He was not there. So the Lord came to him and gave him this message concerning what the Lord's table is. And, and we can refer back into the synoptic gospels where they account at the upper room what Jesus did, and we will in just a moment. But look at what Jesus said. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this as an active participation that does a regenerating work every time you do this. Is that what he said? Do this as an actuated sacrifice or re-sacrifice of my blood. Is that what he said? What is he using as far as a word? Remembrance. Now this is going to feed Bob's question, okay? Do this in remembrance of me. Then this cup is the what? New covenant. What was the old covenant? What were they doing in the upper room? They were observing something. Passover. And what did God promise the nation of Israel? Well, actually to everybody, what did God promise? Because the angel of death was coming, what did they have to put on the lentil of the door as a mark? Yes. The lamb's blood. Well done, my friend. Do you know what that meant? That was a, that was a precursor, alright? That was a, a, a picture of who Christ would be later on. Now, they didn't know that, but the concept is that they formulated this meal, the Passover Seder, that every single part of that meal has purpose and intentionality. And so they eat lamb, all right? They eat lamb during the meal. And it is a celebration and participation. One of the things that I heard in a conversation with an individual, and, and part of my research had to do with going to uh, Catholic broadcasts, and listening to what they see. And one of the arguments that's put out is that if this isn't connected to the meal, if Christ's sacrifice isn't connected to the meal, then it was just a hideous execution on a cross. But their failure to connect the dots was very simply, well, then be consistent with that interpretation if you're saying that because the partaking of drinking the blood in the meal should have the actual blood of Christ because of what it signifies of what happened on the cross and, and they're interdependent, then that would rationalize that when you are eating the lamb part of the Seder meal, that it would actually turn into the lamb that was sacrificed or the lambs that were... You see what I'm saying? The parallelism there? But that's never spoken of. So you have to look at what was said. The new covenant in my blood. And what Jesus says that night in the upper room is, is exactly this. They're observing a Passover meal that had significance. What is the Lord's table? Is a continuation of what God promised. And it is a participation in ceremony that reminds us of the key elements that were required in order that we would be saved. Does that sound like the, the Passover Seder? Absolutely. Were those parts of the meal symbolic or were they, as the Catholic statement would be, infused with grace? 
They are not infused with grace. Catholicism would never claim that it was infused with grace. And I'll explain what I mean by that when we get to actual transubstantiation is the word. So are you following me on this? That there's a connection and Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. We had this old covenant and you observe to remember how God took care of his people in the wilderness. All right. And it was pointing to me. I'm here. This is the realization of that. And now I'm giving you a new one. And so there is a tie to the observance and the practice of that observance. That observance was never more than a, and here's the key term, memorialization. Every symbol in the Seder meal is there for the individuals, for Israel to remember the Lord their God. Does that sound familiar? It is there to remember the Lord their God. So as you continue on, Christ didn't change anything. Now, John 6 is where everything gets really controversial. We don't have time to go there, but I'm just going to tell you, this is the part way before we ever get to the Passion Week where Jesus is talking to his disciples and many other people. When I say disciples, we're talking about hundreds of disciples, not just the 12 guys, okay? And, and what happens here is that he says, unless you are willing to eat of my what? Flesh and drink my what? Blood. You will have no what? Part with me. Now we see this word partake. That word partake in the Greek is the word koinonia, which means fellowship. What about what we call this connects your idea to the concept of fellowship or partaking? Communion. Communion. You're not going to find the word communion in Scripture. We have grabbed hold of that concept because it describes this partaking. So what is Jesus saying? Unless you're willing to eat my flesh, drink my blood, you can have no part of me that's from the same root as this word. Partake, part of me. You can't fellowship with me. Do you know what happened to the crowds at that point in time? They all ran away. They went to their cousin's falafel stand. And they all sat around underneath the palm tree saying, I can't believe I just wasted you know, six months with that guy. He's nuts. Let me ask this question. We'll get into this. Catholic transubstantiation, what is it? Does anybody know? Okay, some of you are aware. I'm going to do my best at this. And this goes back to the first couple centuries. Understand this was a view that was held for 13, 1400 years. This was the only view until the Reformation happened. So, interesting concept here about how important all of this is. Transubstantiation says that Christ is actually infused into the substance of the bread and the cup. It actually changes its substance. And that that happens mysteriously but that is their answer. I'm giving you the short answer on this. That is their answer to John 6. That is their answer to when Christ says in the upper room, take, eat this. It, it's my body, which is broken for you. Take, drink this cup. This is my blood, which was 
what? Which will be shed for you, right? I'm going to help you with this in a minute. But I want to stay locked onto this. Literally, the priest in a ceremony prays over and mysteriously Christ infuses. It's called infusion of grace. It's not just memorial. It's the infusion of God's grace. And it transforms the substance of what you're eating into the actual body and blood of Christ. Where did they get that idea? Well, it sounds pretty right on to what Jesus said, doesn't it? If you take John 6 and Jesus' words, if you take what's said in the upper room, if you take what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it certainly makes sense, except for this. Think about what we said about the Passover meal. Think about what the Passover meal was. He's offering a new covenant, a covenant found in Him. Something that I'm not sure is fair, but it just... I can't get away from it. Why use the symbols at all? Jesus is in the room. If He needs them to eat His flesh and drink His blood, He's in the room. Why use the symbols at all? There is also nothing that demonstratively says that those things are changed at the, at the what? At the Last Supper. So what is the other potential answer here? Because we can see why you would get there, right? Based off of Jesus' words. The answer to this is that Jesus often spoke in allegory. Behold, I am the door. All right? I am the vine. You are my sheep. Right? When he has this conversation with Nicodemus, he tells a very bright, intelligent lawyer, <clears throat> what? Unless you are born again, you cannot participate in the kingdom. And what was Nicodemus' reaction? Are you nuts? Are you telling me I have to go back into my mom's womb? Do you see why we arrive at these things? Jesus often used allegory to get across the ultimate point. This is where you have to get back into what was the purpose of the Passover meal. The other reason that this is problematic is that Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews talks about the fact that in, in Hebrews 10, that Christ's work on the cross was enough for one time to pay all sin there is no longer a need for sacrifice and yet those are the exact words that i listened to the expert in catholicism yesterday that this is a sacrifice jesus did what was necessary for our redemption on the cross and if there seems to be some kind of confusion from what Paul is saying, there is nothing throughout the whole entire New Testament other than these two passages that could be anywhere remotely close to this doctrine. Or what I would say is false doctrine. Instead, Paul says you are justified by what? By your faith through grace. And says it over and over. Says that we need to be crucified with Christ and talk about the fact that we need to do this because of drinking blood. So what we have as a platform is the fact that we start with replacing a system that was all 100% symbolic. 
so that we would remember the Lord our God. Why did Jesus say that we needed to do this? In remembrance of Him and to proclaim Him. So in some ways, the participation here has not changed. We can understand why, we, why the Catholic doctrine got to this point, but I think it's an issue where it became confusing as you got later into the first century. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Justin Martyr are on record for saying this is the body and the blood of Christ. And so the church took it that way. Well, maybe they're just quoting Christ. Okay, the Lutheran, they believe in consubstantiation. This part I'm, I, is a little confusing to me. I really don't understand it. They, they believe it's in it, around it, and underneath it. I don't really, but the presence of Christ is in it, around it, and under What you need to know about that cons, consubstantiation, uh, Martin Luther held this view, is that it doesn't actually change the substance into a literal, physical, or metaphysical representation of Christ. Okay? But one of the other reformers, uh, Zwingli, would debate horrendously with Luther on this subject. Zwingli said, we can only look at the Lord's table as a what? As a memorial. And we'll get to that in a minute. And Luther said, no, it's more than that. The real presence of Christ is there. We're going to get into a question here real quick that I've not heard in this entire debate. And I've kind of saturated my head recently with it. And this is the part that makes me say, mm, you probably should talk to somebody else because I've never heard this and I'm kind of cracked. So you probably shouldn't take... But let's see where this goes. Orthodox. They say that this is just a mystery. They, as far as what I've been told, uh, Hank Canegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, converted over to or Eastern Orthodoxy because of this very issue. Is that, yes, the presence of God is in those symbols, in those elements. What's the point of that? Well, the point is that it's a mystery. We can't understand it. We're not going to try to qualify it. It just is there because he said it was there. What do we hold to? Protestant evangelical came out of the Reformation is the idea that this is a memorial. I've been teaching a class and it's over with. Uh, if we have any deacons, can we go to the thermostats and turn on fan? Because i got people that are about to pass out in here from lack of, uh, lack of circulating air. They may not even be able to take the Lord's table today. Okay, thank you. Um, the memorial view... In this class that I've been teaching on creation, I've been teaching the fact that we need to focus on what is credible and stay away from what is controversial. What we can know for sure is Jesus said, what is the Lord's table? It is a representation of what I am going to do to bring in the new covenant. It is a proclamation. All right, as we partake, we are proclaiming the Lord's what? Is Paul's words. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. What is the Lord's table? Don't think so much about what the elements are. Think about the action of it. Think about the involvement of it. It is a proclamation of the Lord's death, and it is a remembrance of what Christ did for you and I. That is the memorial view. That is what we hold to. Any questions on that? Good, because I've got at least two more hours of stuff. Okay, we went through all of that, which is fantastic. Here's the verse out of Hebrews. For since the law has 
but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. He's not necessarily speaking to the Lord's table here. He's speaking to going backwards and practicing the sacrificing of bulls and goats and lambs in order that sins would be covered, the atoning. And he's saying there's no need for that anymore. It's an imperfect process. Christ finalized it on the cross once and for all. If he has finalized the forgiveness of sins and the penalty, the propitiation of our sins, is there a need to have an active sacrifice every time we go to the Lord's table? <coughs> According to this, there isn't. According to this, there isn't. <clears throat> I, I did that for emphasis. I don't know if you saw that. There you go. See how that's red? Once been cleansed. It's very effective. What is the Lord's table? Well, here's some concepts I want you to grab today. It is finished. If Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, it is what? It is finished. We do not need to go to the Lord's table and have the forgiveness of sins happen every time because we believe that that, that cup is actually the blood of Christ being given for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I don't know if everybody's teaching that that believes in transubstantiation. But I know that often we get a little erroneous in our understandings like baptism washes away my sin. Okay, there was a concept of that under John's baptism, symbolically. But in this, we need to understand, there is no more need for sacrifice. When we place our faith in the one who died, who made that sacrifice, we place our faith in that one action. All right? So it was finished. Paul only and ever speaks to the one act on the cross as worthy. Does that make sense? Paul doesn't bring up over and over, you must partake in the Lord's table in order for the remission of sins. That verse does not exist. All right? New covenant speaks to the replacement of the old covenant, which was observed through symbolism of the Passover meal. We've talked a little bit about that as well. He promises, and here's my controversial part. John 14, Jesus promises whom? The Holy Spirit. He says, I'm leaving you. And the disciples start weeping bitterly. It's like, how can you leave us now? And he says, no, I have to go be where? With my father. And trust me, you want me to be with my father because I've got other work to do. And he says, I'm giving you one the Holy Spirit that will come reside with you. Is there any reason we would need the actual presence of Christ according to John 14 <coughs> to infuse the symbols? I see none. I see in His plan and in the Father's plan that He's given us what we need every day that's outside of a ceremony that we might be able to partake with Christ because the Holy Spirit is within us. Am I nuts? No. This, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that was God. It was Garrett in the booth. All right? 
But I've never heard this comment for all those that want to say it is necessary for Christ to infuse with grace the elements. Why? It was his plan to give me the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I have something to attend to. I am seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We see no scripture that says he's doing a back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Remembrance and proclaim. I think those are the two things I really want you to camp out on. Why we practice the way we practice is remembrance and proclaim. If we did this properly, there's something so beautiful, and I'm going to transition into this because I've got to wrap up. If we were to do this, there really is a, there, there's a statement that I, I'll, I'll move to quickly from the Free Church Doctrinal Statement. And it goes back to some councils of the church that talks about how the Lord's table nourishes us spiritually. You know what? You're kind of glossing over, so I'm going to have to maybe make this a two-parter, okay? Because you've had a lot of information, but I, I need to leave you with inspiration today. What is the Lord's table? You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gets on the church because they have missed it. They've mixed it with another meal. They're treating it in an unworthy manner. And he talks in chapter 10 about how intently purposeful this is and how it nourishes us spiritually. Why? Because Ephesians 1 says that through Christ we've been given every grace upon grace in heaven and in earth. But you know, part of that is that we are communing. We are partaking in a relationship that moves us and when we do so spiritually we are what nourished now that's something to leave in your laps as you think through this and i'm going to give a counterpoint so you re this really comes home for you there are days where i'm just sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting and typing and typing and sitting and typing. And then I go home and I get in my recliner and I turn on the Warriors game, which was a big mistake last night, and, and sitting and typing and sitting and typing and sitting. And, and, and what if I do that for weeks on end? I'm going to atrophy, aren't I? I'm going to get bed sores. I'm going to become unhealthy. I'm going to become sick. If you continue reading... In chapter 11, that's exactly what Paul says. When you eat in an unworthy manner, there are some of you who are sick among us. And I think this is the contrast, right? That we need to look at the importance of the Lord's table is affixed to the idea that active participation in a spiritual walk and connection with the Lord through this symbolism of remembering and proclaiming nourishes our spirit and our soul, and we are spiritually what? Healthy. Healthy. This is the reason there's so much value in what we're doing. And this is my primary reason in saying, we're going to do this every week. 
Now that's one of the things that I'll have to get to eventually. Is it, is this biblical? Do we have to do it every week? Do we do it once a year? Do we do it semi-annual? Do we do it in the spring? Do we do it in the fall? What's the right thing to do? My answer to you as to why we've chosen every week is that we want to give you every opportunity to be spiritually nourished. Does that make sense, brothers and sisters? What a great point to finish on. All right, let me close in prayer. I'm going to have to come back to this only if you want me to. Do you want me to hit the rest of it later on? Any, any opposed? So ruled. Remember, it's titled Ordinances. All right, let me, uh, let me pray, and then we've got some exciting things to um, encourage you with this morning. Father God, as we cover such a, a beautiful opportunity and practice that you have given to the church that we might commune with you, we, mar- we might partake with you, we might walk with you. We might be inspired with you. Let us not approach in an unworthy manner. Let us look, Father, at the state of our soul, the state of our spirit. Let us come to you in confession each time. Let us work throughout the week that, that we might walk in a, worthy ma- a manner worthy that you would be proud and we could enter the throne room without hesitation. And so that we can partake even today. And so, Lord, as we partake in the Lord's table week in, week out, that we would each take the responsibility to live as those who proclaim Christ. And that we do so proudly and effectively. And that we intimately desire to walk with you. And, Lord, that there is something unique and special that happens in this participation that is consecrated. Yet, Father, we truly see that the words, it is finished, does not require something different, but nothing else other than what you have requested, that we remember and we proclaim. Thank you, Father, to your glory. Amen.